Now, getting into the sermon itself, and maybe not the text yet, though, I think that most, if not all Christians today, would say that much of the religious establishment in Jesus' day focused more on externals and not so much on the heart. So that, that the, many of the religious people thought that if they gave that exact 10% of everything, if they prayed so often and fasted so often, then, then they were good with God because they did those kinds of things. Even Jesus' disciples had to be confronted with this mindset. Maybe you're familiar with the story of that young ruler who was wealthy, and he was having this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus confronts him on his love of money and stuff. And Jesus is grieved, and that man is, is sorrowful as he walks away from Jesus because he loves his stuff. And when Jesus teaches his disciples, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then we're told that the disciples were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now I've heard some people interpret that text and say, and say, it is easier for poor people to get to heaven than for rich people. Is that what Jesus said? Because if that's the case, then we should ensure that everybody in the world is poor because it heightens the chances that they're going to be saved. And we should also see in poverty-stricken countries many more Christians that exist there if it's easier for poor people to get saved than rich people. But that can't be what Jesus means. Otherwise, salvation can be guaranteed by human beings, and salvation can be of works and not by grace. But see, that's the mindset that Jesus is actually confronting. In the first century, just to give a little bit of a backdrop, the people thought that if you had money, you were more blessed by God. And so to experience greater blessing of God, that meant you were closer to the kingdom. So when Jesus says it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom, that's why the disciples say, then who can enter? If the rich people are closest, then who can enter if they're not going to enter? And what does Jesus say? No. With man, it is impossible. What does that mean? Meaning human beings cannot guarantee salvation for themselves. There is no way that any human being, rich or poor, could ever save themselves or trust in their merits or demerits to guarantee salvation. Only God can save people. And so what Jesus is doing with his disciples is showing that the greatest need for humanity is their need for God. While we as human beings may benefit from money, a pain-free life, fun vacations, clothing, food, and some of those things are necessary for survival on that planet, on this planet, even though that's the case, we cannot rest our eternal salvation in these things. Now, nice little sermonette, Pastor Timothy, what does that have to do with Genesis chapter 5? Well, we can all fall into this trap, can't we? 
we can look at other people who have a lot and we can say, oh my goodness, God has really blessed them. Or maybe you've had an experience before where someone's talked to you and they say, how did you get that? And how did you get that? And you say, I'm very blessed. And maybe by that you mean that God has given you these types of gifts. And that is true. He's given you those gifts. But did you actually know that in the New Testament, the word blessed is never associated with physical things? Did you know that? In the New Testament, the word blessed is only ever associated with the spiritual realities that come in relationship with God. You may have experienced God's general kindnesses. And what's the point of God's kindnesses? We've been talking about that the last couple of weeks. The point of God's kindnesses is to lead to repentance. To cause us to cling to God all the more. To love him more. But you know what? We can get in our minds too, can't we? They're blessed. And the converse, I'm not. Because we focus on the externals. Now, I say all of this because as we've been looking into Genesis and even looking at last week's text, we saw that Cain and his descendants clung to physical affluence and security. And we see that those things do not indicate God's blessing. It means God is showing kindness that should lead them to love God more, not to cling to the stuff more. And then we see in Jesus' day, just in the example I gave, even in Jesus' day, so many people in Israel forgot that message. They clung to stuff. And then we also see in our own hearts, we do that as well. We focus on the externals and not on the heart. But we're confronted with this reality when we look at last week's text. Will we turn to God as our satisfaction or will we numb ourselves for our need for the Lord? And that's exactly what the wandering Israelites needed to hear from Moses, who wrote these words. That they can, as they're wandering, ask, are those cities, are those cities more blessed? Or are we wandering ones blessed? Is it better to wander in the wilderness with God or live in a city without God? And as Moses continues to write, we come into Genesis chapter 5 and we come to a lengthier genealogy, which we all love genealogies, right? They're so exciting. And actually, I would say this one is extremely exciting, literally, in all seriousness. Because Moses here, Moses here wrote these genealogies to help further um, emphasize that God keeps his promises. Hmm. Just realize all my slides are from last week. So I'm not sure what happened. So we got no slides up there. I'm so sorry. Okay. I'll try to make things clear. Moses wrote these genealogies to help further emphasize that God keeps his promises. So last week we saw a shorter genealogy from Cain and his descendants, and it was to be representative that Cain is following the seed of the serpent. Now we're transitioning to chapter 5 to have a contrast, which is to show this seed of the woman, this promised one that's going to come. So I want to give three reasons, or three three, uh, emphases in this genealogy, okay? So if you just, this is an introduction of what's the point of this particular genealogy. First thing is, this genealogy points to the fulfillment of the seed of the woman promise. It points to the fulfillment of the seed of the woman promise. 
the promise that God would crush the head of the serpent. Because we can read about Cain and his descendants, and we can see how they terrorized, really, one another, and the sin that affected each other, and the murder and revenge that's taking place. And you could ask yourself, God, do you care? Where are you? Why are you allowing this this to happen? And then this genealogy comes up in chapter 5 to remind us that God sees. And God has always been the one since creation, the one who brings order from chaos. But that's not the only thing. Oh, can we blacken that just to make sure they're not distracted? Did we find it? Can you give me the clicker? We'll wait patiently. Right? I know you're dying. Thank you. There we go. That's the first point in the genealogy. Thank you. The second point of this genealogy is to highlight important truths from human beings to remember, for human beings to remember. In the ancient world, there was a, there, there was a common way of writing genealogies to have a 10-person genealogy. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that that is only 10 generations. Father of can mean... Uh, like grandfather even. But they're putting a 10-person genealogy here for a purpose, okay? So in that 10-person genealogy in the ancient world, the first person, the seventh person, and the 10th person matters, okay? And that's what we see in this genealogy, the first person, seventh person, 10th person. And there's important truths when you note the first, the seventh, and the 10th. What should we learn about God and about people from the first, seventh, and the tenth. This sermon today is going to focus on the first, seventh, and tenth. We're not going through every single name. And you say, thank you. All right. Thirdly, this emphasizes the Lord's faithfulness in the midst of the curse. Over and over and over and over and over again. And they died. And they died. And they died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Death is, I think, the most commonly repeated word. It's at least clear. Death happens. The curse, what God said, that the earth is going to eat you up, it's doing its job. And yet, in the face of death, we can ask, is there hope? What's the point if we keep dying And this genealogy shows us that there is movement towards redemption. There's movement in the midst of pain. There's order, beauty, and life coming even in the face of death. So now we can turn to this text in Genesis 5 and ask, in the face of death, how are we to live until the serpent crusher comes? We know we're not supposed to follow Cain's seed of the serpent ways, but it's not enough to just know what not to do. We need hope to empower us to actually live for the Lord. So so to put this question more so, giving a statement, humanity's identity, life, and rest are found ultimately in the Lord. And I would say if we understand and really believe this truth, we will follow God in the face of death. We will be convinced 
If we, if we really believe this, we will be convinced that death doesn't have the last word. So with this understanding, we're going to take these three points, identity, life, and rest, and see that in the first, the seventh, and the tenth person. The first reality, humanity's identity is found ultimately in the Lord. Let's read verses 1 through 5, actually. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created, when Adam had lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he followed Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Moses begins this genealogy by taking us back to Adam and Eve's creation, stating that they were created in the likeness of God. And this is what we've looked at previously and discovered that being created in God's image or being created in God's likeness means that human beings are more like God than anything else in the created world that we have been blessed with the highest privilege to be able to represent God in unique ways. And even we discover in this text and the previous text that, that the two genders matter. Male and female, he created them and named them mankind. Okay? And so there is a beautiful design that God has in creating maleness and femaleness in order to image forth his glory more fully. We continue on into verse 3, and we see that Adam was 130 years old when he had his son Seth. And then we see Seth is after Adam's own image. Now what does that mean? I think this is a really important truth for us to remember. The image of God did not go away after people sinned. Do you hear that? The image of God is marred. The image of God is fallen. It's definitely not perfect. But the image of God still exists. Do you hear that? Because it passes down now. And Seth is in his his father's image. And then we're told that Adam has sons and daughters. Which, by the way, also means male and female, he created them, still exists after the fall. And it's an important thing to remember because there are people, even today, who will say, well, before the fall, it was male and female. Now that it's fallen, there's so many more. And yet, Genesis 5 says, not so. We're in the image of God, and sons and daughters are coming from Adam and Eve, in the image. This emphasizes the reality of that main point. Our identity is found ultimately in the Lord. We are in God's image. We are in God's likeness. We're in the most privileged status And the question is, are you going to be like Cain who turns from the Lord and who seeks to find identity and meaning apart from God? 
And Cain, who saw identity in the city and the security that he felt with that, with the music and sciences and food, or are you going to trust the Lord and say, you're the one who is my identity. Your glory needs to be what fills me. Think about this. In what ways are you tempted to find your ultimate identity in the things of this world? Just ask yourself, really, literally, what, what things do you turn to to find your ultimate identity and worth it in? Did you know that you can find your ultimate identity and worth in good gifts? Did you know that? Just want to see heads nod one direction or another? Some of you might say, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's right. Wait, a city with walls and food and sciences, were those good gifts of God to Cain? Uh-huh. Was he following the Lord? No. Those are what we call common graces of God. So what about you? Maybe it's in being a mom or a dad. And that's where you find your identity. And if you're successful, whatever, however you define success, if you're successful in being a parent, well, you feel great. And you feel more valuable, of more worth. If, if you don't feel successful, then you feel shamed and miserable. Or maybe for you, you live for money. And if you lose money and you can't control it, then you feel like a failure or your life is falling apart. You know, many people have taken their own lives because of loss of money or loss of status in a company. We can take good gifts like Cain did and turn them into our identity. And so we have to ask the question, is, is that you? And just to be sure, don't just say, again, don't just say, I'm doing a good thing. So my ultimate identity can be found both in God and this thing. But what did Jesus say in his ministry? You cannot serve two masters. You either hate one or love the other, but you can't serve both. Generally, I've found that the safest test in knowing if you're finding your ultimate identity in something is how anxious, fearful, or angry you are if that thing is threatened or taken away. I'm just going to say that again so you can test yourself. Generally, I've found that the safest test in knowing if you're finding your ultimate identity in something is how anxious, fearful, or angry you are if that thing is threatened or taken away. Ask the Lord if that's you in any area. It's not worth it to live like Cain. And if you're a believer in Christ, you have to repent. You have to because God has saved you unto good works. You have to turn from these things. So the first point God wants us to see in this genealogy is your identity is found in him. Not in your definitions, but his not in you, but in his glory and goodness. So that's the first point. The second point God wants us to see in this genealogy is found in person number seven. Humanity's life is found ultimately in the Lord. So let's read verses 21 through 24. 
When Enoch had lived 65 years, he, followed, he, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he followed Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Humanity's life is found in the Lord. So, so now at this point, it's time to acknowledge how long these lives are in this genealogy. Have any of you ever read these genealogies and thought, mm, and looked at the years? Mm, I don't think so. Anybody ever felt that way before in reading? At least I'm not the only one, okay? And there are people who make arguments from culture to say there's, there's no way that these numbers are literal, uh, because there are ancient contexts in which, in which numbers are used to signify uh, signify one's power, one's authority, one's magnificence. And so they'll just give astronomical numbers in order to show that, right? That could be the case here, but I'm actually not convinced of that. And one of the reasons why I'm not convinced of that is, is actually when you go back into the ancient world, this, this is more than intriguing to me, is that there are multiple sources, even outside of Judaism, where you have the ancient world giving ages of people before the fall and after the fall. Not the fall, flood. Before flood, after flood. And what's so intriguing is that the ages are a lot longer before the flood and significantly shorter after the flood. That's intriguing to me. So I don't want to argue about those things. But I also will acknowledge, too, that I think just like the names can mean something and, and, and speak to spiritual truths, numbers and how long God had them be alive can speak to other spiritual realities as well. Now, having said that, we look at the ages of these people. And we just went through Cain's genealogy, and we see Cain's genealogy. They built cities. They had food. They had stuff. And now we have this genealogy of Adam going down to Seth. And these people are living a long time. I think the people are doing fine. You could be tempted to think that. What do they need God for? They're living like 900 years. That sounds way too long to me. But, you know... I think they found, like, the fountain of youth or something. And yet, there's things to keep in mind with this. Even with their long lifespans, they still died. They, they couldn't make it past the grave on their own. And secondly, I think this is another important truth to keep in mind as you read these genealogies. If I can word it this way, they don't even come close to God's age. What I mean by that is this verse. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You have the oldest man mentioned after Enoch here. How many years? 969 years. He doesn't even make it to a thousand. And God's view of a thousand years is like yesterday when it is past. What does that mean? It means vaporous. It's like, it's gone. Like, oh, that's over. Okay, moving on, right along. Right? So you have the longest human life, and that's nothing in comparison to God's timelessness, to God's glory. And so what we should ask here is, then, where is eternal life? Where is real life found? 
This is what God shows us through Enoch. We have the shortest life recorded in this seventh person with Enoch. And yet I would dare say that we're all jealous of him. Because we read Enoch walked with God. And he was not. For God took him. So so question, would you be content with a shorter life walking with God? Or would you rather have a long life without him? Now, when I say that, I'm not saying Methuselah didn't know the Lord or I don't know the spiritual state of these other people. But this is the question I think we can ask and also in contrast to Cain's lineage. Would you rather just have a long life or do you want God? See, Cain chose to ignore the reality of God. He chose to pursue after his sin and find whatever pleasure in that way. Enoch walked with God, the superior joy. And this reminds me of Jesus' own words when he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You can have all that you want to pursue, but then you die. And then what? Enoch is emphasized here, the seventh person. And what is uniquely stated about Enoch? He walked with God and he was not, for God took him. The author of Hebrews actually comments more on what this means. When he writes, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So Enoch went up to heaven. And by the way, this is the first reference in Genesis to some sort of life that exists beyond the grave. There is a life that supersedes the cursed life. So we ask our question, how do we experience this eternal life? The author of Hebrews says we experience this through faith. Enoch trusted in, Enoch depended on the Lord. And then Genesis shows how Enoch's trust played out in his everyday life. Genesis shows what it means to please God. Enoch walked with God. This is the intention for image bearers. This is how we all ought to live. This is what pleases God, to walk with God by faith. But you can say, what does it mean to walk with God? That that is the question. That is the question all of us should be wondering what the answer is. What does it mean to walk with God? Because God commanded the Israelites to walk with him. And in the New Testament, the Bible commands New Testament believers to walk with the Lord. What does it mean then if this pleases the Lord? Like how one man by the name of Alan Ross puts it, the expression became a common description of the life of fellowship and obedience with the Lord as if to say that walking with the Lord was a step above mere living. Get that in the genealogy. They live, have a child, continue to live, die. But Enoch, he walked with God. That's better than living. 
That's superior to dying. You can say, well, what does that mean? What does that look like in everyday life? This means that the whole of the life of one who follows and trusts in the Lord, the whole of the life is communing with the Lord. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, God comes to your attention because you know he is near you. You aren't simply walking to him. You're not simply walking near him. You're walking with him. Think about, think about this week. I'm, I imagine many of you are going to go downtown this week. Some of you are like, no, I've had enough of it. Okay, But many of you are probably going to go downtown. And it's going to be crowded, right? Thankfully, 8th Street's open, so you can breathe a little bit, okay? But, but you can be walking in a direction, and all these people around you can be walking in the same direction. Did you commune with them? Well, I walked with them. No, you walked alongside them, okay? But what if I go downtown with my wife, and we're hand in hand? And we're headed a certain direction and we're talking and we're taking in the sights of that. Now what has happened? I am actually walking with her. You get that? I'm walking with, not just next to, not just alongside. I'm with. And Ventura, I pray that each person here would understand this. Because I think that oftentimes People settle for so much less than walking with God. People read their Bibles and they pray mechanical prayers and they walk away from that time and they just said, I did my devotions today. Man, can you imagine if we talked about time with people like that? I did my time with my son. I did, my, I did my time with my wife. I did my, I don't care if you did. I, I want to know, did you commune with the Lord? And not just did you, are you? Because it's an ongoing thing. Am I communing with him? Am I fellowshipping with him? Am I talking to him, trusting him, walking in fellowship and relationship with him? Because God is life. He's not just a part of my life. He is life. And that's what Jesus himself said. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that knowledge is not just knowledge. It is an all-encompassing knowledge that takes you over. Eternal life isn't simply knowing about. It's relational. It's communal. And it's beautiful. Enoch walked with God. And he was not. Because the Lord had taken him. I'm jealous of that man. I can think, the picture I get in my mind is like me walking with one of my children when they were little. And holding their hands. And then all of a sudden, scooping them up into my arms. That's what happened to Enoch. Walked with God, and now he was not. I think about that, and I think, what would be a beautiful phrase on my tombstone? He walked with God, and now he's in the arms of his father. 
humanity's life is found in the Lord. And finally, we see humanity's rest is found ultimately in the Lord. Look at verses 28 through 31. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he followed a son, or fathered a son, and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. So here the genealogy comes to a close, and we have Lamech from Seth's line, who significantly contrasts from Lamech in Cain's line, who just wanted revenge and murder, and Lamech here is yearning for relief and rest from the curse. And so Lamech actually speaks prophetically about his son Noah, saying he is going to bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, there is irony here, and I think there's actually multiple meanings in this. First, actually, I think we could say in some sense that Noah was going to bring, I don't know if this is the right word, but like relief or rest to God's heart in the sense of justice needed to take place, and God was going to show justice, and so there's going to be punishment on the earth. And that's what happened through Noah's message And through the flood, judgment was necessary. But secondly, I think Noah is bringing relief for humanity through judgment. Even though the people at the time, yeah, they're going to be relieved of their work. We know what happens. But I think this is talking in even a greater sense of God's redemptive history. That humanity, there's going to be relief that is going to come through Noah. There's, there's in this sense, you're going to see this as we move into Noah. There is a recreation that is taking place here in this narrative with Noah. Like a new creation, in a sense, that's coming. And through Noah, that serpent crusher is going to come. There's going to be a rest from the curse. Now, as we put together the three points of this sermon, the rest, life, identity, I want you to notice that in each point, I I listed ultimately in the Lord. Remember the word or the name for Lord there? In the Hebrew is Yahweh, which is the covenant-keeping God, the God who keeps his promises. And the question, again, we should ask is, will we trust him? Do we trust him? Do we know he's worthy to be trusted? He ought to be trusted because we know that his lineage continues all the way to the serpent crusher Jesus Jesus, who ends up living the life we could never live and becomes a greater Adam and a greater Noah. And on the cross, Jesus ends up taking the curse that we deserved and then raises from the dead to conquer death. Jesus, then, becomes the fulfillment of the Genesis 5 narrative, the one who brings relief. I want to just take a couple of moments to show you how beautifully Jesus fulfills this narrative. We're told of Jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I'm just going to stop there. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, which means Jesus is 
God. But he's also man, the one in whom we find our identity, because Romans 8.29 actually says, For those whom he foreknew, whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his who? Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Whose image are we being conformed to? Jesus, who is God-man. Jesus is our identity. And in Jesus' ministry, he goes on and he speaks to the people and says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, say that word, rest. We yearn for rest from the curse. If you turn from your sinfulness and turn to him for rest of soul, he grants it. And, and, and that rest is exhibited then through walking with him. Do you know, do you know what the early Christians were called? In the book of Acts, before they were called Christians, they were followers of the way. Why were they called followers of the way? Because the way emphasizes relationship and communion right now. It's not just when we get there. It's now. I'm on the way with Jesus. It emphasizes dependence and reliance right now. And to walk with Jesus right now signifies that the curse is being reversed. Did you know that? Looking into the New Testament, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, we read these words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, what? Walked. And then Paul continues and talks about those who are forgiven of their sins. And then he says, Sorry. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To no longer walk in sin and then to walk in this. The curse has been reversed. Later on, or in another place in Ephesians, Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then in Colossians, we read, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, can you just say this with me? So walk in him. Walk in him. That's even greater communion than, than what it sounds like with with. But, but the coming together of unity, live in dependence always on the Lord and in the Lord and for the Lord. Jesus fulfills this genealogy. He is life. He is identity. He is rest. Jesus is God's promised offspring, reversing the curse so that we can experience afresh our identity, life, and rest in the Lord. And to those of us who have been rescued by Jesus Christ, we also know that death doesn't win. The grave doesn't win, right? Because Jesus fulfilled this. Then, Cain's, what happened to Cain? Can happen for us. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is talking about what's going to happen someday. It hasn't happened yet. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Does the ground win? No. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Yes? Actually, that wasn't, that, that needed more, didn't it? Right? I'm just going to read that again, and let's just rejoice. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Amen? And Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. God the Father is going to scoop us up because of Jesus Christ and all that he's done. Praise his name. And it's in these realities that we transition here to communion. May you, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen.